Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. Before we get to today's episode of Perpetual Chess, I just wanted to say thanks to everyone who has supported the show. Ways to support Perpetual Chess include telling a friend about the show, subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use, better yet, leaving a positive review on that platform. But most of all, I want to thank the people who've supported me with the new Patreon page. If you haven't heard, it's patreon.com slash perpetual chess. And the suggested donation there is $2 a month. So I tried to keep it as affordable as possible for as many people as possible. The donations go to cover things like the production, the audio equipment, and the hosting for the show. So if you can't afford it, you definitely shouldn't donate. But if you can, it's really appreciated and it helps out a lot. And guess what? I think it's also going to make the show better. What we're going to do is people who donate to the show will get advance notice of the guests and they will have the chance to send in questions to the guests. So if you feel like there's some topic I don't cover enough, or if you have some favorite player that you're waiting for them to come on, well, there's a good chance we're going to get them at some point. So now you can sit back and wait. And then when someone's coming on who interests you, you can pounce like a cheetah and get your questions in. I think this is going to make it a better show overall, more community driven. I've always said I want this show to be by the people and for the people. Well, I think that this will help make that happen. So thanks again for all the support and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Okay, everyone, welcome to Perpetual Chess. I am here with another great guest, chess teacher, chess Blitz specialist, chess trash talker, and game show champion, Jonathan Korbla. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Hey, Ben. It's good to be here. How are you? I'm well. So, John, I think you're the perfect guest for me this week. I'm a bit under the weather. We're recording at night, and I'm old, and I'm tired, but I know that you have you have the gift of gab, so I'm counting on you here this week. 
Hey, well, listen, you 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 uh, got me down, and I couldn't wait, so I, I listened to a few of your other podcasts. I know you had been talking about your podcast before online, and I listened to, uh, I guess, uh, Judith Polgar and Hikaru, and so I got kind of the gist of what you guys do here, so... Yeah, yeah you know, we basically, they tell their life stories. They tell us why they're so good at chess. Um, what you're going to do is you're also going to tell us why you're so good at chess, but you're also going to tell us why you're so good at game shows and why you're so good at trash talking. And, you know, obviously you're going to connect all of these things beautifully. Um, <laughs> weave a tapestry for us. I, I, I will, the tapestry will be woven today, I suppose. Excellent. Okay. So, John, I mean, I think, so the, the, in terms of people who listen to this podcast, there's going to be a subset of people who know exactly who you are, you know, some personal friends of yours and people who've seen you around and stuff like that. And then there'll be people probably from a little farther away from New York who, like, who the hell is this? Yeah. Guy? Who, who is the, who is this guy? Why is he on the podcast? <laughs> but, um, but it's all good because you'll win them over very quickly. But anyway, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, all right. Um, my name is John Corbla. I am a, chess expert oh i guess feed am around 2100 and uscf also around the same um in blitz i'm a little stronger than that you can find me on icc i'm just corbla c-o-r-b-b-l-a-h you can also find me on chess.com same name i always use my real name i've never ever used anything else when i've gone online because there's something important to me about people knowing when they've lost to me <laughs> and one, one thing I hear a lot is people like they'll play me online. They'll say something like, oh, man, I played you and I beat you. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, what's your name? And they're like, oh, no, I can't tell you that. And I'm like, oh, well, I have a lot of pride. It's not arrogance. I just have like I, I, I know that I when I win, people know they lost to me because I hardly ever win. I make other people lose. <laughs> and that's a huge distinction. Well, I was watching, you know, obviously we go way back and we, we've played Blitz a few times, although not as many times as like, you know, you would expect, um, right. given how, how far back we go. But so I know, uh, you know, your style is legendary. Your skills are legendary. But I, I still watched a few YouTube videos before we started recording just to get in the mood. And as I was watching them, I was thinking, like, it's got to be way easier to play you online than in person. Oh, oh yes. Oh, goodness. Absolutely. I always tell people my strongest piece is my mouthpiece. <laughs> right. When I am playing chess, I mean, I came up playing chess in the parks. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a park hustler writ large that's just become like a real chess person like i grew up in brooklyn i played in mount olympus park which is basically this park on eastern parkway in crown heights that you know it's the home of players like master lee nemesis but most famously maurice ashley and ah. then after i went to that park like i learned about you know washington square park i learned about saint nicholas park uptown i learned about Bryan park and throughout my teens it was just me like basically hustling and being hustled by the hustlers in the park and like learning the ways of guys like Sweet Pea and Elementary and Poe and Russian Paul, Morgansky. All these guys kind of like shaped a little bit of my game. And a big part of their game is trash talk. I mean, it is something to be able to play chess in loud, crazy, bustling New York City with cars honking and people smoking and babies crying and dogs barking and sirens blaring. And you just, you know getting checkmate in four in a forced position nice and i'm sure you you know you did battle with those guys and like you know had a little money on the line at times but was there anyone who took you under their wing back in the day well 
by taking my money, they took me under their wing. <laughs> right, I yeah. forced myself into their business because, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I would say, you know, whatever $5 allowance I got or whatever money I earned packing bags in the supermarket, I would take straight to Mount Olympus. And these guys, even though I was 14, 15 years old, they're like, hey, we're playing for money. And I would lose my money really quick. And the number one thing I wanted to do was, A, win because I hated losing. But, B, I wanted to get my money back. And the way I did that was, you know, by going back to the park. I don't think – in fact, a lot of those guys, they were actually, like, uh, not even not taking me under their wing. They were more like, damn, this kid's got money. Let's take more yeah, of it. Yeah, taking you to the cleaner and stuff. Oh, absolutely. They had no shame. Yeah. I'm with you. I mean, I grew up in Philly, and I'm a couple years older than you. So the, the hustling scene was not quite as intense. But I I worked in I was like middle class growing up and I I had jobs. So I had money for a 14 year old. You know, I had like 30 bucks in my pocket and I managed to lose that playing blitz on more than one occasion. So unfortunately, I didn't get the trash talking skills to show for it that you did. Well, I mean, the thing about trash talk, right? And a lot of people do it well. And, you know, guys like Poe and guys like uh, this guy named JP, we call him Morgan. You know, there's a. There's arrogance to trash talk, which is it just rubs people the wrong way. And I th- I try to go in the other direction. You know, I try to have a little bit more charisma to my trash talk. You know, often uh, one guy who I really really learned a lot from was this guy in California named Carl Hine, the great Carlini. He wears a big old pith helmet. He sits in uh, Santa Monica and their big chess park over there. And he's just like, how does it feel to be my meal? And <laughs> miserable king. And I, I, I like sort of a, a little whimsy, a little, you know, uh, kind of bantering trash talk. But also I want my trash talk to be funny enough that it kind of takes you out of your game because you're just listening to me instead of thinking about your moves. You know, I'm not trying to tell you you're horrible. I'm just trying to, trying to tell you that I'm amazing. Right. And to distract you. Exactly. Um, so do you have, like, as there's theory in chess openings, do you have, like, go-to lines in certain situations? Well, the whole philosophy for me in Blitz, I think Jonathan Maxwell wrote a pretty decent book. I mean, the fact of the matter is, even all of us who are playing, all of us who are listening, you know, around the world, most of the chess we play is Blitz. That's just a fact of the life. I mean, we can't play mostly slow games. Blitz is just something like 75% of the chess that we play. And I have never been a sort of person who's thought to myself, I want to prove that I'm great at chess. I just want to win. And <laughs> like, and I don't want people to think that I'm so amazing. I want to take their money. So at the end of the day, I've played a lots and lots of garbage bullcrap lines. Like anything like a Black Mardemer Gambit, a crazy Danish Gambit, Goring Gambit. Just if I can give away a few pawns, I do. And usually in the first three or four moves of the game, I'm like, here, take a pawn. Here, have another one. I hate my pawns. Take them all. And the person's just incredulous because they're like, oh, this is trash. I'm going to punish this. And as soon as they get that feeling in their head, I know I got them because they're not trying to beat me. They're trying to prove that they know what chess really is. And I'm like, okay, great. Take a little bit more time. And my number one philosophy is a minute is worth a piece. So the first minute of the game of chess, instead of like, you know, making amazing moves, I'm I'm trying to like get that extra edge. And once I get you down a minute, then all of a sudden I look beautiful because you start blundering. I think uh, I think Delugi in a chess.com video said that a minute is worth a pawn. So I think it might be that that a minute is worth a pawn and then your mouth is worth the other two points. <laughs> well, there you go. That, that'll work. <laughs> um, so uh, you mentioned this guy in Santa Monica. I know that you were like 
All right. I mean, we're not going to go too back into our personal history, but basically we both long time ago taught for chess in the schools and trained together uh, with with some other chess luminaries. Shout out to Mike Klein and Elizabeth and people like that. But when were you in California? Well, you met me in August of 2001. That's when we both interviewed uh, at Chess in the Schools back when it was on 46th between 8th and 9th. And, you know, it was still like Lewis Coleman and all those guys. And um, I had just returned from California maybe about a month before I had applied for Chess in the Schools. I literally got back, was living with my mom, and she was like, you're going to get a job. And I, I had like two or three dumb little sales jobs. I went to the Marshall to play a tournament, and this guy named Mitchell Fitzko, who's a you know, great chess teacher, venerable chess personality in New York, he's like, hey, you know, you should apply teaching chess. I was like, teaching chess? Well, I'm not going to make $3 a year. <laughs> I have no idea. But you know, I, I did, and, you know, I met all these great guys like Sean O'Hanlon and Steve Herks, rest in peace, and, and even like Ron Bukok, who's still over there at the Chess in the Schools program, and Sean Smith, who runs it. So I met a lot of good guys, and I met you and Mike and Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, that was when I very, very first started sort of learning about actual chess knowledge and pedagogy. I mean, before I worked at Chess in the Schools, I was right, maybe around 17, 1800. I had never cracked a chess book. I'm dead serious. I'd never, like, never had a chess coach. Um, I had never even thought about how to really analyze. Like, I had gone over some games with Jeremy Silman in California and, you know, met guys like Carl. But I never really kind of... You know, I, I, honestly, it's still today, you can tell from my own moves. If you go over any one of my games online, you can tell this is not a guy who's really taken <laughs> the, the real chess seriously. And yet, in my life, I've been able to play three different world champions. I've played dozens and dozens of grandmasters. I've, I've played celebrities, singers. George, George Soros. Yeah, we're going to get to that for sure. Mm-hmm. That's that's in my notes. Like, like you have this... Um, this Forrest Gump quality to to the life that you've led. Yeah, you, I guess just... I've been pretty lucky. Anyway, yeah, back in California, I just kind of like, you know, went to the park a lot. And I, I realized if I'm playing so much chess, why am I, what am I doing still here in California? You know, I wanted to be some kind of, you know, big star. And that's where the game shows came. And I always wanted to be on television. I always wanted to sort of have some kind of, you know, brush with fame and the glitz and glamour. But then I was in California and I had done some extra work. You know, I... I, uh, you know, put on a, a huge fur suit, went out to Ojai, and I was in the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, and they didn't even use me, but I got in a school bus, and they made me up for a while. I, I was an extra on this um, movie called Tomcats, this movie called uh, White Oleander. I did, like, some chess kind of consulting for them, but I never really kind of, like, pushed myself to do any actual Hollywood kind of things, and I was working for a dot-com company. It went bust, and I just came back to New York, and... I guess the rest is history. I really threw myself back into chess when I came to New York, and okay, and so people started knocking on my door too. And so that out. lifts, sorry, that that lifts the curtains on the Corblan mystery a little bit because I didn't like, you know, we grew. You're a couple years, like I said, you're a couple years younger than me, but you're from New York. I'm from Philly. I felt like I I knew most people that age, and then uh, you being like we meeting working together at chess in the schools, I was just like, who is this guy, and where did he come from? You know. Well, I, mean, I, I was relatively unknown, honestly. Like, I only had played in the parks. I, when I met you, I had been playing chess tournaments for maybe about six months, I think. And I had gone from, like, my very first rating was 1,500. And I went from 1,500 to 1,800 just literally just by playing and going over my games and kind of, like, just trying new shit. 
Um, yeah, I, I didn't have a coach. I, I My entire youth, I played a lot of tournaments, but they were all unrated. They were library tournaments, tournaments in a park that like had no ratings. And I would play on ICC, and I thought I was pretty good. You know, I was like, oh, I, I'm 1900, 2000 on ICC, and I've never even played a tournament. I'm that is really, that is really good, though. <laughs> Oh, I, 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 I was listening to Judith Polgar say that she had played something like tens of thousands of games of Blitz. And I was like, yep, that'll do it. So, I mean, all you guys out there who are trying to figure out, like, how do I improve? Just you do the Malcolm Gladwell method. you got to put tons and tons of time at this. I don't know, though. I don't think that works for, for everyone. You know, there are people who learn by doing and there are people who learn by studying. And, like, you know, Hikaru is another example of someone who's, like, a little bit coy. You know, he says he learned by playing. But, I mean... Like a lot of us play chess and we're not Hikaru, right? Yeah. So, so there's there's some sort of difference there. Yeah, I, I mean it's hard to say. I, I I first met Hikaru when he was really young, and I would say he was maybe like I don't know, nineteen hundred. I was also around nineteen hundred at the same time, and he just whooped my butt. And people were like, oh man, when he loses, he cries. Right. And one of the funny things, one of the funny things was a few years like you know ago, someone was like. Like, he wasn't even that old, you know, he was whatever, maybe like 22 or 3 or something like that. They're like, oh, man, Hikaru stopped crying. You know, he's really gotten mature. And I was like, no, nah, he, he didn't stop crying. He just stopped losing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> nice. Okay. So then, all right, we got to weave in the game shows. So this was a passion. So you moved out, first of all. Okay, so you jumping around a little, excuse me. But you moved to, to California uh, specifically in order to be famous? Or were you like in school there? Well, uh, I dropped out of school, and then I went to California sort of to try to follow some kind of dream. And, uh, you know, I went there, and, you know, as I said, I worked for some dot-com company. But then I ended up just sort of seeing chess players and getting excited about the, the games that I was playing in my teenage years. And I found the hustlers, and I found, like, guys like Carlini and Duckworth. And I, I was just there hustling. That's when I actually first started teaching. I taught – I met this kid named Max Landau, this kid Julian Landau, and they're, you know – they were both like really strong and they were a little too strong for me to teach them. But like, you know, their dad hooked me up with a lesson and I found another lesson after that. And before I knew it, I was like teaching just a little bit, even though I was only like a 21 year old kid. Okay, nice. And, and your game show debut was way before that, right? Uh, yeah. Um, when I was a middle school kid, I was around uh, sixth grade. This um, PBS came to my uh, middle school and they were looking for kids to be on the show called Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. And uh, they gave some tests and uh, basically a lot of the teachers recommended a kid in my class. And, you know, luckily for me, Ms. DePero sent me down to the assistant principal's office and I just had a big smile on my face. And I was like, yeah, I, I know where this is on a map. That's easy. And I just like pointed at France or something like that. And they're like, what about this? And I was like, Brazil, come on, that's huge. It's right over there. And like the other kids were like, um, I was like, what else is there? And then I found out they were doing a game show. And like literally uh, two days later, I was in Secaucus, New Jersey, and boom, bop, 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 bop. <laughs> and yeah, it was it was really fun. You know, I, I uh, put on a little red jacket and had to find Vic the Slick and you know, double trouble. It was, it was pretty fun. So from then on, you're like, I want to be on game shows. Well, I don't know if it was that easy. I knew that game shows wasn't this foreign, impossible thing for me to do. It was, I suppose, naturalized at that point that why wouldn't I be able to go on a game show? So, you know, I would watch Jeopardy a lot with my brother from the time I was like maybe nine years old. I mean, we watched the local news and then Jeopardy came on. And when we 
would watch Jeopardy, we were both super competitive. I mean, my brother played chess with me, and we played all kinds of smart person games. But when we were watching Jeopardy, we'd keep score. You know, I got six right, you got four right, so on and so forth. And and we'd like make, you know, da- daily double wagers of how many got we got right, and we would sort of do a final Jeopardy. And I was like, whatever, 11, 12 years old. And I remember the moment that I knew I was going to be on Jeopardy was there was some question. It was a triple stumper. You know, none of the three people can get it. I was just shouting at them like, come on, Corsica, Corsica. And they were like, and then Alex Trebek is like, that answer was Corsica. And I was like, oh, man, I could beat them today. And at, at that moment, I was like, well, I can't wait. And I started trying out for teen Jeopardy, for college Jeopardy, uh, for regular Jeopardy, uh, the Jeopardy teachers tournament. I tried out maybe about nine times, I suppose, over the course of from the time I was a teenager to the time I got on when I was 31. And uh, I passed the test maybe about two or three times. And then I finally got on, you know, on Jeopardy, which was a big lifetime achievement. Yeah. And that was like that took a while. But OK, since we're on the topic, we have our first question question from uh, from a supporter of the podcast, some dude named Mike Klein. Uh, ah. asked, um, ask if he has insights into how people pass the at-home test to, to even get a Jeopardy interview. Apparently, mm-hmm. even the smart contestants have a group of people helping and Googling super fast, etc. I found that interesting. It's like online chess. Cheating is rampant, but you have to in Jeopardy to keep up with your competitors. Okay, is that true or false, Jonathan? Um, I wouldn't say it's that true. It is somewhat true. Uh, when I took the test, I would say the last two or three times I took it, I took it with some friends of mine who I do pub quiz and, and host trivia with. Um, there are a lot of people who are taking the test who are just, you know, layman people who sit on their couch and try the questions and they're not actually hungry enough to get on the show. They're just kind of like, Oh, I'll give this a shot. We'll see what happens. When I was super motivated, I treated it like I was taking the bar exam. And in that respect, I searched for, in order to pass that test, you have to actually, like people who try to take the bar exam, they take practice bar exams. The people who take SATs, they take practice SATs. I took tons of previous Jeopardy contestant tests. I took about 12 of them in a row, and I just kept going over them. And I would take these practice tests until I would consistently get, you know, 43, 44, 45 out of 50, because that's that's what they're looking for. They're looking for, like, 99th percentile. Because 100,000 people will take this test, and they're only taking the top 1,000 or so. And, you know, they'll take maybe, like, 40 or 50 people in every city around the country. So I took a lot of those tests. And, you know, I watched Jeopardy a lot. I read a lot of books. You know, I have... Ken Jennings book, um, Brainiac, and uh, this other, you know, a few other Jeopardy contestants who are, you know, really famous. One guy wrote a book, uh, Chuck Forrest, How to Get on Jeopardy and Win. And, you know, I just read all these books and I kind of started picking up little hints of things to kind of learn to help me get on the show. And honestly, the way that I kind of related is the way that I started learning chess, which is, you know, I go over my mistakes and then I would kind of read and like pick up some knowledge and then figure out what I did wrong. And after a while, I started to kind of improve and I saw kind of holes in my game the same way that you might say, oh, my end game is lacking because of, you know, I keep losing these king, rook and pawn end games. Um, You know, I would not know things about classical music and opera. So I would get these things called Pavlovs and I started studying these lists and doing more quiz bowls. And there's a lot of resources online for the uh, trivia enthusiast to improve if you really take it seriously. It sounds like you took it way more seriously than like your your academic pursuit of chess. 
Oh, well, I'll put it this way. There was something, there's, there's something that I love about chess, which is even, you know, as I teach kids, even from a young age, when people associate chess with high intellect, they're like, oh man, you play chess, you must be smart. And it's kind of like almost this weird imposter syndrome. I, I have this all, all these things that I realize people be like, oh, if you do this, you must be pretty smart. And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. And like Jeopardy was one of those things. So I, I applied myself at chess, but then that peak, like every single time I reached a peak in chess, whether it was like, you know, beating my first master or making, you know, expert rating or beating my first grandmaster or winning some tournament and what have you, I was happy up until some finite point where there was just this diminishing returns of happiness where like I could keep pushing myself to become a GM, but would I be happier with that? Whereas like, I suppose with the trivia stuff, it was almost like a language that allowed me to communicate with more people in the world. When Jennifer Shahadi wrote her book, I think chess bitch, she was kind of giving a talk about it. And she was talking about comparing chess to art and how if you don't know anything really about fine art, you kind of haven't studied art history, you can still walk into the Louvre and appreciate, you know, the Mona Lisa or the Last Supper or some great masterpiece. Whereas if Fabiano Caruana plays a nine move deep variation for Checkmate, which is just so brilliant that it knocks all of our socks off. Unfortunately, if you don't really have that backing in chess, you just can't appreciate his brilliance. And I guess the one thing that drew me to, you know, sort of trying something else was that I saw this hunger for allowing more people to appreciate. And I think, like, even when I'm trash talking, even when I'm playing Blitz and I'm trash talking, I'm trying to bring the, the crowd into the game so even the not the casual observer can start appreciating what they're seeing you know i'm kind of explaining some moves and you know like a guy's thinking about a move and i'm like hey everybody yo this guy's about to put his bishop on this square and little does he know i'm gonna take it because it's a sacrifice or you know some other crap like that and you know it's it kind of ingratiates the 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 non-chess master to understanding what they're watching and anyway for me that was what jeopardy and trivia was it was kind of like a much more palatable intellectual pursuit for the popular masses so to sum it up you learn trivia in order to impress girls oh yeah man absolutely are you kidding me on my tinder there's a picture of me like with a bunch of money with my hands up in the air and like the responses were like man you went on jeopardy i mean now i have a girlfriend but she like found my tinder and saw the picture of me and then like did a bunch of googling and she knew exactly who i was Uh (laughs) and i was very very impressed with that so nice and yeah you do some like emceeing at pub quizzes and stuff like that right oh yeah yeah i've been doing that for a long time i've um hosted at a bar called pete's candy store black and white the bag and i host about you know two or three different pub quizzes on a regular basis and i'm hosting another one in about a month and yeah, I'm, I'm always writing questions, researching questions. And actually the pub quiz that I go to, I, mean, I went to one in LA called O'Brien's, which is just packed to the gills with, you know, Jeopardy champions and, you know, champions of other shows like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and, you know, all these other like, you know, high level intellectual game shows. Which you've also been on, by the way. Yeah, I've been on a lot of them. For the uninitiated, yeah. <laughs> 
anyway, um, yeah, the, the one that I do in Brooklyn, it's, it's very high level as well. You know, we have Tournament of Champions contestants. So the, the level of the trivia gets, starts to get a little arcane, a little esoteric because everyone's kind of trying to one-up each other. Everyone is trying to kind of come up with some obscure fact that no one else has asked about. And then that leads to this kind of arms race of, like, who can stump everyone else and then for the uninitiated when they come into this pub quiz they're just blown away because it seems like a regular bar but someone is like you know in the dreyfus affair what, right. uh, who said jacques and people are just like what what's going on it's yeah and with the the glow with the diversity and like the competitive streak of its residents i feel like new york probably has like the strong at least you know if not the strongest amongst the strongest trivia team like if you did like a trivia olympiad you know oh, that was like 15 boards deep i feel like new york would be uh tough to beat oh yeah i mean there's some really strong players who actually also seem to play some chess uh andy kravis and uh roger craig and uh you know there's alex jacob I and mean, they're all uh, new yorkers and they're all like high level jeopardy players and yeah there's there's a venn diagram that overlaps and it definitely is sort of male heavy for sure on jeopardy and a lot of game shows and especially the trivia style game shows and, and chess okay another another uh, patron question from todd bryant hi corbla i love playing excuse me hi corbla i love playing pub trivia but sadly i suck at it if i wanted to invest a little time improving my knowledge what should i focus on how can i become 1800 strength at pub trivia Ah, that's a good one. All right. Well, speaking from the pub trivia grandmaster, I suppose um, there are finite sets of information that you should try to master. Uh, when I very first started, it, for me, it was just like state capitals. And then, you know, from my youth, I knew world capitals. You know, I was on wearing the world's car in San Diego. But then I expanded that periodic table of elements, presidents, vice presidents, academy award winners. Now, how do you get better at that kind of stuff? I mean, there's an ICC for chess and there's Sporkle for trivia. Sporkle is like literally the number one resource that I use in order to improve at something. And just, you know, go on to Sporkle.com, put in a quiz. And usually the most common ones, like, you know, learning all the, I don't know, halogens or the, you know, presidential assassins. Once you start doing that on a regular basis, I go to Proto Bowl and then it just kind of trains your mind, just like memorizing an opening and kind of going through something. Once you remember it, then you kind of retest yourself and then you give yourself all kinds of other, like you keep going back to pub quiz. I mean, at the end of the day, and I say this a lot, what happens in pub quiz is not just your memory, it's your recall. And in order to really hone your recall, you have to, constantly be digging for answers if you know you watch blade runner with me today and then six months later we go to a pub quiz and they ask some question about blade runner i probably would be a little bit more likely to answer the question correctly because you know there's almost something that i've kind of trained my cerebrum to sort of keep trivial details at the top of my head because I might need to re-get that information at a later time. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, we watch something and, or we listen to something and it just kind of goes in and out. But a big part of improving at trivia is somehow forcing yourself to start maximizing and, and uh, take seriously the, the 
small bits of information that keep coming past you on a regular basis. And I can't say enough. It comes from playing. (laughs) So what would you say is the difference between memory and recall? Well, recall is immediate. You know, I mean, they're asking me the question at pub quiz and I have to hand in my sheet immediately. You know, I mean, recall is, you know, can I bring something from my hard drive that is my brain out to the screen immediately? And some people's processing like, oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. And, and, you know, memory, like if I gave you a, in a vacuum enough time, I, most of us can remember certain facts and details, but I'm just going to get it right away. And, and that's, that's, it's a muscle. It's, it's a fast twitch muscle. It's the difference between a marathon runner and a sprinter. So if you're watching a movie, is there like, is there a sort of different approach to how you're watching it? Or is it just that like, you've already laid the groundwork and now you just remember you retain more from it? Yeah. I mean, you know, when those synapses start firing, then like, all right, for instance, like, I learned all the, I was talking about Sporkle before, and I learned all the world capitals. And, you know, the other day I was watching, you know, some Bond movie, and they were talking about, like, Jubiljana or Ljubljana or, you know, the capital of Slovenia. And I was, you know, just thinking, oh, oh there you go. Like, these, the more, like, the more you start paying attention, then the more these things start connecting to other things. Uh there's a, a saying for it, the Bader Meinhof complex. You know, you had never heard of something before, and then it keeps kind of coming back again and again. And all of a sudden, you realize, like, was it there all along? Right. It's yeah. This kind of cognitive dissonance you don't even realize, but it's it's right there. And the more things that you've kind of aggrandized in your mind of being sort of relevant, then the more you start seeing it come up again and again whereas if you don't then those things will come to you but, but you won't even realize them it, you've probably been seeing you know that same sign over and over for weeks but then someone told you about it and then you start realizing it right so it's it, it's it's a kind of weird mind trick and once you kind of capitalize on it it actually helps your memory and recall amazingly and then you just People ask you questions. I mean, I wasn't always this way. When I first started playing trivia, when I first started doing pub quizzes, I, I didn't have this muscle as sharp. And it's like if you solve tactics problems, you know, you solve 100 tactics problems every day. You're going to see that mate in two much faster than someone who doesn't solve 100 problems every day. And is there, you know, there's a lot of like super strong chess players who have a sort of savant quality where like maybe they can remember reams of theory, but they are like, you know, don't remember their keys at home and stuff like that. Like, do you have any of that going on or are you just pretty sharp in all aspects? Oh no, that's definitely me. I have literally pure a mind that is just, it's, it's like if I was a weightlifter and I had one arm that was super jacked and the other arm was very skinny. (laughs) Okay. My my girlfriend is very, very uh, frustrated by how much I forget or (laughs) literally turn my brain on for because like I've been able to survive this long in my life with, you know, kind of not, I, I lose everything on a regular basis. I never wear a coat. I've never worn a coat in my life because I just <laughs> leave them places. Umbrellas, <laughs> hat, keys. I've lost phones. I remember, I remember I had a, my phone in my hand and I was walking out the door from a building to a car and then my phone wasn't in my hand. And I had no <laughs> idea where it went. I don't remember putting it down. I just lost it. I was in Virginia. I remember vividly. I'm like, yeah, that's me. So, I mean, there's a high price to pay, but 
I've also won almost two hundred thousand dollars on game shows, so like you know, I make up for it by honing my mind for others. Right. It sounds like yeah, you you could buy a few phones, I guess. Yeah, it's it's, it's a zero sum game. I don't know. <laughs> so, are you still like in active training for game shows? Anything going on right now on that front? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, the game show thing is actually super difficult. You know, I make it seem like it's pleasant, but there's a lot of rejection. As I was as I was saying, you know, of the maybe 10 or 11 times I tried out for Jeopardy. I, don't, I mean, they only got me in once. And, you know, I, I had to deal with that. This guy, VJ Balsa, he tried out for Jeopardy like 20 times. So a lot of the time, I mean, you know, I'm telling people, hey, watch me on this show, watch me on that show. But almost every single year I get rejected for about four or five game shows. Um, so I was just most recently on Let's Make a Deal. I did uh, I did another game show with this guy named Action Bronson, a rapper. Oh, yeah. Fun uh, on Vice. Um, I did a game show in a barber shop that was kind of like a karaoke based game show that's going to be on MTV, and I believe that's going to be airing in December. Uh, you know, I, I was called up for the match game, and I was in like kind of the 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 one yard line about to sort of score for that, and then the last minute, I I was taken off. Actually, that was Pyramid. I was I was taken off, but you know, I'm, I'm always trying out for shows, and every single time there's an opportunity, I'll try out for another one people often ask me how do i get on so many and i tell them the same thing i i try out and i fail and i fail and i fail but the funny thing is nowadays since i've tried out so much kind of casting directors have sort of remembered my name so i get these emails like hey you tried out for this show we still have your name maybe you might want to try it for this one and i'm like okay sure so pretty okay. lucky I, i'm going on number 13 right now wow all right an important question so like when you get turned down like is why why do they how do they pick ben i appreciate you asking like that question <laughs> why would anyone exactly pick? listen I mean, to this guy go put, put him on your television goodness gracious i'm television gold i'm like <laughs> the most handsome large black man you've ever missed <laughs> um I, I don't know honestly there's uh, the last time i was turned down they said something like i was on too many shows and they wanted a fresher face or something and i didn't do the application process correctly or any number of different reasons you know i was in the green room for win ben stein's money and they were like oh we might have you on and i was like oh please 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 and maybe i was like a little too thirsty for that show or I mean, some shows I'll just keep trying out and we'll see what happens. You know, Price is Right, I was, I've been in the audience for Price is Right two times already. And, you know, Bob Barker, I guess Drew Carey has not called me down yet or whoever the announcer guy what, is. What were you wearing in that? Is that your Facebook photo where you're wearing like some crazy wig and like some pajama looking thing? Yeah, that was me on Let's Make a Deal, which is okay. like <laughs> the Wayne Brady show. Uh-huh. I basically only change my Facebook picture if I'm on a game show. Like, okay. I, I would say, what, 10 years since I got on Facebook, the very first picture I put up was because I had just been on, I suppose, Cash Cab. So I put up a picture of me on Cash Cab. And then right after that, I was like around 2009, I was on a show called Big Quiz Thing. And then 2010, I was on Jeopardy. So I've always just changed my picture to like some screenshot of me on a game show. So my last show was Let's Make a Deal. And that's my last picture. And I will probably change it when I'm on a game show again. Nice. Okay, just a couple more questions on game shows, and then we should probably get back to chess. Um, so, um, you can't go back on Jeopardy, right? There's no, there's no double Jeopardy, right? I was on Jeopardy a couple times, and I lost uh, at the end. So, I cannot go back on until 
Alex Trebek retires. However, when he retires, that opens up the floodgates because, you know, there'll be some new host and everybody who was previously on Jeopardy now is going to try to get on again. So it'll be very, very difficult to get back on. At least for a couple of years. Exactly. The odds of me getting back on Jeopardy are slim to none at this point. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. You just got to wait. It sounds like. There you go. Exactly. Okay. And a couple more um, listener questions. Everyone's questions were about game shows. Oh, Um, boy. Okay. Uh, Nobody respects my chess game. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you something. I've beaten everybody. Okay, I've uh, last Levon Aronian. Last time I saw him, he we we played a bunch of games, and he was like, "Who is this guy?" He was giving me odds. He was giving me like three to one thirty. We played about five games, and I knocked two off him. So wow, that's amazing. All right, we're definitely we're definitely getting to that because I don't even know like how you get in the same room as him. But oh man, I've played. I've played everybody good. Yeah. All right, but let's just tie up this game show uh, topic. So, question from Jay Stallings. Um, uh, he says, "I've done chess Jeopardy, like in his teaching, and more recently, are you smarter than a world champion in my camps?" To popular reviews, and it's a fun break in regular activities. Knowing that you're both a game show veteran and a prominent chess coach, do you ever combine the two by simulating a game show in your chess class or camp? If so, what game show formats have you found to be the most effective? Well, I gotta say hi to Jay. Thanks for the question, and Todd and Mike Klein, all good guys. Um, Jay's a great coach. He's super resourceful. He has a wonderful website. I recommend all chess coaches use it. He gave me these great forms for, uh, you know, doing quads. So he's a highly type A organized chess coach. Yeah, he's, he's um, been on the show and, uh, yeah, quite impressive. So, yeah, people should yeah. listen to that interview if you haven't already. Yeah, there's, um, there's, a, there's, there's a lot that other chess coaches can learn from Jay about preparation and, and what have you. Um, I am relatively extemporaneous as a chess coach. You know, I go over a lot of my students' games and I have a lot of kind of famous games that I've stored up and memorized. Uh, my kids are relatively young. Uh, I coach from, I suppose, kindergarten up to uh, most like third, even some fifth graders. But uh, I've tried Chess Jeopardy in the past and other kind of game show stuff. I uh, often actually just ask my, like, while the kids are eating their snack before they start chess, I ask them actual trivia questions just to sort of get them sort of like their brains going and motivated. And then we So, like, it. chess trivia or trivia trivia? Oh, no, actual trivia stuff. Like, I want my kids to, to, to be, like, little geniuses. Nice. Um, but I, I've done chess Jeopardy in the past, but I wouldn't say it's, like, on the top of the list of things that I do. I have... Uh, from time to time, turned on the smart board and, and gotten it going. It can be uh, monopolized by my top players often. And I, every time I've tried it, I've always tried to figure out a way to... The, the hard part is when kids are working in teams, there's always some kind of uh, dominance happening. And yeah. I don't like the, uh, the the craziness of it. But maybe I can bend Jay's ear and he can tell me a good way I can make it run. Okay, and it's kind of related question from Brian Karen. Uh, if a producer asked you to design a game show based around chess, what would you propose? Oh my! And this you could be the host if you can come up with this. So, <laughs> well, then that's like some kind of million dollar idea that he's asking. <laughs> yeah, <do>. seriously. <laughs> um, you know what's so funny that you mentioned about me being the host of a game show is people often ask me like, "Oh, you should make your own game show. You should host," and. I don't think that they know me very well because I like to win. I want to beat people. Like if the game show I was on was like Stump the Schwab or Win Ben Stein's Money, then I probably might be down for it. But other than that, I don't want to just keep giving away money and being the guy with the microphone and the suit on. I want to I beat people. Like I'm a competitive guy. 
So I don't know if I could be the host of a show, but if there was some kind of chess show, I know, I remember reading some history of chess book about how when the game first began, there was dice rolling involved and, you know, sort of a lucky thing about how many squares you got to move your piece. And I remember this game that Greg Shahadi used to be addicted to where you just kept moving the pieces over and over. Like it was a kind of version of speed chess where you could just keep moving every single piece. And then whoever took the king first won. I forgot what the game was, was called. Was it Atomic Chess? Was it online? or It was online, but it was not on any of the platforms. It wasn't on ICC or chess.com. I, one of the, your fans would probably remember what it was. But anyway, I guess it would be something along those lines. There would be some kind of beautiful set with a giant chessboard and some kind of square that there was a prize if you captured a piece. You know, just like you, you got to go for the, the low-hanging fruit as far as television goes, because one of the number one things that happens is the viewing audience needs to feel smart. Right. And, and as we've learned, people are very dumb in this country. <laughs> so, you know, you have, you, it's, it's, it's this weird kind of middle ground where you have to find all these dolts and make them feel like geniuses and yet still kind of teach them something. So it's, it's, uh, it's a tall order to fill, especially yeah. as far as chess goes. That's why Wheel of Fortune is more popular than Jeopardy. That's absolutely right. Another show I've been on. <laughs> nice. I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, the, if I reel them off real quick, it's Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Uh, who Wants to Be a Millionaire? The Big Quiz Thing. Uh, uh, let's see. Jeopardy. Uh, Cash Cab. Uh then there was the Million Second Quiz. Uh, I was on Wheel of Fortune. And then uh, Let's Make a Deal. Uh, 500 Questions. Uh, I saw uh, that one. Macadian, my wife and I watched you on that. That was a fun show. I yeah. wish, honestly, like, remember what I was saying about the, the finite sets of information? Like, if you just kind of could remember all of the different Bond films or all of the different, you know, what have you, like that was one set of information and someone asked you something that would have been defined by that subset, you could just kind of very quickly reel them all off. So that's how I was able to get on that show against people who were vastly smarter than me because that's just how I trained my brain. Nice. All right. So time for the chess story. So how do you meet? Like, I've seen like multiple pictures with you at different like events, like kicking it with Magnus. Like, how does that happen? No, oh, Maggie, Maggie's a buddy. Of mine. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Maggie, we go way back. Um, <laughs> Magnus, maybe about uh, I don't know four years ago, maybe uh, when he came to New York City. Maybe it was like 2012, even so, maybe five years ago. Uh, I met him. You know, first he came to some chess NYC event, and everyone was very deferential. And I came in with my usual braggadocio, and I was like, who is this guy? I'm going to tear him up. And he just looked at me like, what? And, I mean, there is a deference. You should have respect for your, you know, great world champions, one-in-a-lifetime kind of people. But I don't know. I, I'm just not wired that way. You know, Frank Sinatra. And, and did he have respect for for you? For the- <laughs> <laughs> no, he destroyed me. He destroyed okay. me very, very quickly. But um, we played a, a game of Blitz because he was taking on all comers. And, you know, I was trash talking during the game and he was just like shaking his head like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and, but he remembered because the next time I saw him was at some kind of a benefit. You know, I, I get invited to things. I kind of invite myself to things, I suppose. And, you know, when I know people are going to be there, I, I, he saw me and he was like, oh, I remember you. You're the guy who played the, the Petrov. But then when I 
Like it was, it was an opening. Like E4. he seriously remembered the game. Absolutely, he wow. remembered the game that I played with him two years later. It was a blitz. He played like forty blitz games against forty people that day on a random Saturday afternoon. And then two years later, he saw me. I mean, listen, I'm a memorable face. I'm very handsome. But he saw me again. And I, I, I remember the face, but the game. Come on. <laughs> he he was like, I know you. You're the one who played that Petrov. And I was it was like E4, E5. He played Knight F3. I played Knight F6. He took on E5, and I played Knight C6. And then he took on C6, and I like played D takes. It's like I don't care who you are. I'm gonna sack a pawn. I don't care if it's a six-hour game or a two-second game. I'm gonna give all of my pieces to you. I'm I'm a man of principles, uh, and I, I strong opinions loosely held. Huh. Um, anyway, I, I I yeah, I gave away the piece, and he remembered me right away. And then like we had a little camaraderie because I was trash talking him, and like I'm kind of like he's Frank Sinatra, and I'm his Don Rickles, you know, like I like him. But I'm I'm still gonna give him some shit, you know. Nice. And, well, I'm sure that's I'm sure he, he likes that. You know, it's yeah, like uh, you know the the super famous people. They're always looking for the people that will actually tell them. Like like if Jay Z is working on an album, you know, he wants the guy that tells him the song sucks. He doesn't want everyone to just be like, you know, this is amazing. Yeah, and there's a lot of people. I mean, it, it, there's a there's a, you know hero worship and and a little bit of awe. And uh, I mean. I have a hero. His name is Jonathan Corbla, and I get to hang out with him. <laughs> so, like, you know, I don't really get too uh, distracted by other people. So, you know, we've been able to hang out, and you know, I uh, he was introduced to a good friend of mine named Doug Hirsch, who's kind of like basically the chess world version of like the great connector. And he's, um, you know, he, he has a hedge fund. He's a, a guy who I taught how to play chess, and you know, I even taught his kids. I met him through my school, and you know, he's kind of great at connecting people and uh, as am i so he's introduced me to like guys like george soros right and another student uh the the krugers were really nice and you know all right well, okay very important question did you talk trash to george soros <laughs> <laughs> well george soros has a i think he's deaf in one ear maybe so i could have so, been so you were extra been loud playing, i think i could have been playing like mega death and he wouldn't have heard what i was saying because there's a lot of I can, he can barely hear me. Um, his English is fine. His understanding is great. He's actually sharp. But Oh, he's a genius. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's extremely smart, but, you know, he's soft-spoken guy. He's how is it? How is his game? Uh, we played uh, King's Indian. Uh, you know, I played the black side of it, which is you know something I absolutely know nothing about because I was trying not to sack any pawns. Like, sometimes I was just like, let me prolong this game. You know, when you have a, a person like that in front of you, I mean, he's... In my opinion, maybe about sixteen hundred strength. He's actually pretty decent. Oh wow! Yeah, maybe seventeen hundred even. Um, and I just you know started playing him in the game, and he was you know sharp. He knew about you know lots of moves of theory, and I was just like, I don't want to sack any bonds. I just want to hang in there with him and make it a good game. Like honestly, I wanted it to be a memorable enough game that he wanted to play me again. So I wanted him to just come on the precipice of winning, and then I wanted to the hustler move, <laughs> the hustler move. And I'm so good at it. Like it just it is literally like. Like it, like duck to water. Like I know <laughs> how to be in a losing position because I start the game in a losing position. Like literally, there's not a single game that I play where I'm not down a lot of material. Like it's just every, 100% of my games, I am down material, and so I know I know how to come back. And like that's honestly why a lot of people hate me. Like <laughs> I play people online, they're like, 
jackass, you asshole, you suck. You shouldn't be playing this game. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm terrible. <laughs> You're like, if you if you think you hate me online, you should try me in person. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was a very fun game with George Soros. And at the very end, like, obviously, I couldn't let him win because he would have seen through that. And I, I beat him at the end. He enjoyed the game. We went over it. You know, dinner yeah. at his place it was really fun. I should have been like, hey, can I borrow a... Uh, two million dollars right well i was gonna say you got, you also need to try to get him to up the stakes <laughs> exactly uh, but like you know anything less than a million dollars you could just shake it out of his couch cushions right exactly yeah all right so um who else what other uh you mentioned you played three world champions so who besides magnus um oh man me and kasparov we we also go way back um yeah so kasparov i first met probably when i was still uh teaching at Cheston schools maybe or like right after that and uh, John Fernandez, who used to be like the vice president of uh, ICC, he invited me and like Mick Greengard and all these guys to Times Square for this Kasparov Karpov match, right? And it was like this three game match for like his Kasparov versus the World book. And he, uh, you know, they played these games and I think Karpov won something like maybe it was like a four game match. Karpov won like two and a half to one and a half or something. And I remember there was this line in his book that was like, oh, you know, any game that I would play after that first match with Karpov was like a sideshow. It wasn't serious anymore because I had clearly surpassed him. And I was like, damn, like Kasparov, that's some shade. Like, <laughs> you would say that. So I was just like, I was like looking at that. And then like right after the match, I was like showing the passage to some people and they were like, yeah, that's how it is. And I was like, I'm going to say something. So he was like doing his little, uh, I don't know, like a press conference. And I just like walk up in the middle of the press conference and I raise my hand and he like points at me and I'm like, uh, Mr. Kasparov, Mr. Kasparov, on page number 158 of your book, you say that your games with Anatoly Karpov were basically like a sideshow. After losing today, do you still feel the same way? You know, just so, just garishly, just unmitigated gall, just because, you know, I'm a jerk, little chest troll. And he... He just was completely confounded. He was like, uh, uh, well, any any game can be sideshow in this match. This recreation. I was like, oh, okay. And he just like shot me daggers. And he also remembered me. And <laughs> the next time I saw him was at a simul. And when I saw him at the simul, I mean, I'm pretty famous for not resigning. And I also am very punitive on my students for never resigning. I've never resigned a single chess game in my life. And I, uh, I had one of my students, you know, had the honor of playing Kasparov. And I guess maybe like Michael Kodarkovsky was like, you know, kids, if you're in a losing position, then, you know, we want to honor the grandmaster's time. And like, you know, we've all, all of us masters and, you know, strong level players have played simuls and we don't want to like diddle doddle trying to mate with a king and queen or something. So it's like, it makes sense. But I was feeling pretty persnickety that day. And I was like, don't resign no matter what and like my poor kid right he's like turning around looking at me when he's like down a piece and i'm like don't resign <laughs> like you know gasprov gasprov is pretty rough when it comes to simuls like if he's in front of you he's gonna knock on the table he's gonna huff and puff and grunt like he's he's gonna shoot some angles and get an advantage on you and i was just like it's me versus you gasprov <laughs> so then I, he was like 
you think you could? And he's getting mad. So I was like, this is a winnable game. He's like, yes, shit, show him. So I sit and I start playing the game. And obviously, like, Kasparov beats me in, like, you know, whatever. Like, eight, like he checkmates me in, like, eight more moves. He wouldn't even, like, finish the game. And I'm like, oh, good game. I put my hand out. He doesn't shake my hand. He remembered me ever since. He still remembers me, probably. I saw him the other day on the Upper West Side where he lives. And he was just like, uh. I was like, yeah, okay, bye. <laughs> so so no, lo- no love for you. No, not not really. But, you know, hey, listen. And he's got other things. He's got like flying penises and like Putin's henchmen to deal with. So yeah, not I'm number one on his list of like people to worry about. Okay, and world champion number three. Um, I played a game online, and you know, somebody was like, "Oh, this is definitely Bobby Fish's account," but I'm not 100 percent sure I played him. Okay. But you know, I played a lot of the top guys in the world. I played Hikaru, tons of games. Fabiano, tons of games. I, mean, I played those guys when they were kids, but I still play them nowadays. I mean, I see them all the time. Um. Yeah, I, I'm just relatively lucky to be able to. Okay, and any other famous people we've left out, like outside of the chess world? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so in the Hamptons, uh, I was at Howard Stern's house. He loves chess. Um, I was able to play him. Of, uh, of course, you were in the Hamptons at Howard Stern's house. Why? Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> I mean, he lives right there in Southampton, like maybe a couple doors <laughs> down from Doug. Um, I played against uh, Sting. I was at his place. And Naturally, yeah. He has, like, a, a big old beautiful chess set in England that uh, is, is on his property. Sting loves chess. Um, I wish I could have played a few more people I, 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 here and there. I mean, like it doesn't always come back to me now. But I think you're going to need to be my uh, guest booker, Corbla. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna start when you meet these people. Just start harassing them to come on the podcast. <laughs> uh, Liv Tyler, I played the uh, Liv Tyler game of chess. She, she she really likes the game. You're always welcome on Perpetual Chess, Liv. <laughs> yeah, no. The more the the more the merrier. I, I, haven't, uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten anybody uh, lately. Uh, oh, at the World Chess Championship, uh, Woody Harrelson was playing a couple games. He right. Like, you got uh, you got the VIP seats, right? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, come on. You know me. I'm, I'm, I'm cloying and charming at the same time. So I'm, I'm going to try to get myself in everywhere. And I was in the VIP area and there was, you know, I was trying to play Neil deGrasse Tyson. I taught his kids chess and I've actually taught a lot of famous people's kids chess. I taught Robert De Niro's kids, Michael J. Fox's kids. Um, uh, Jesus. Yeah. So many. Yeah. Um, Cause you're at, you're at Trinity, which is one of the top schools. And are there others as well? Yeah, Trinity is like one of the top prep schools in the country, and I've been there for more than ten, like almost fifteen years. Uh, I mean, I left just in the schools in two thousand three, and I kind of bounced around a little bit, you know, not knowing if I was going to continue playing and teaching chess. But I stayed in it, and then I got this opportunity to teach at uh, Trinity, and I've been there ever since. And that's actually so, how I met Doug Hirsch and a lot of other uh, well-heeled, well-connected people. So, how did that opportunity present itself? Uh, well, there was, you know, a lot of turnover in terms of like the teachers that they had had. And I had taught privately, um, in a chess camp, a student who's, you know, who had attended the school and, you know, they weren't kind of happy with who the teacher was. And they just said, like, they tried to basically organize an interview with me in the school because the school was also looking in a different direction. And then it just ended up working out. I actually tried to bring in uh, Jennifer to teach with me, but she was in the middle of different things and poker and whatnot. So it didn't really work out, but you know, I've been there for a while, so it's been my bread and butter. Excellent. Yeah. Good. And it's great. You know, I just recently, I had a kid win the New York state chess championship there. Um, I've had, you know, we've on the nationals, especially in the grade nationals, we've had a a fourth place finishing team, a third place finishing team uh, in Elizabeth's movie, uh, Brooklyn Castle, in one scene, I think uh, 
a few of her kids are like playing heads up against a couple of my kids and just kicking their butts and stuff. So go 318. They always do pretty well. Yeah. And I guess 166, which is my other school, which I feel like you used to teach them. Yeah, yeah. You, you inherited it from me. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm still over there. I mean, literally, like you taught some great kids like Lauren Weiss and Zach Wiener and yeah, those those kids, you know, in that neighborhood, you know, they they keep they've kept playing chess. So your your Ben Johnson's legacy continues. And yeah, you, you can pretty much just coast. Rest on my laurels for fifteen years, right? <laughs> yeah, but no, that school has definitely won a lot. I've had some individual champions there, and I've had some. I've won some national championships in some of the lower levels and sections. I'm still yet to get my first. Uh, national championship coaching in the open section and championship section but i won pretty much every other section several times yeah i think you have too many interests to get that honestly jack of all trades master of none uh, <laughs> i mean I, you don't even know about like all my karaoke hosting or scrabble anything. yeah apparently you're teaching scrabble according to the internet oh yeah yeah i mean i've for a certain point i remember when greg shahadi was living in brooklyn uh you know we were at a party together you know all of us chess partiers me and fritz and everybody we're at some party and you know greg had his scrabble set out and i was like oh man my mom was a scrabble tournament pro like i'm pretty decent i've played scrabulous and lexulous and all this stuff i could probably beat greg and greg pulls out the chronos and he just whoops me like whoops me fast and i didn't take to that too nicely because i was like damn it he's he's a 2500 at chess and he beats me at scrabble that's just not fair like i'm supposed to be the the the, the savant here so <laughs> i kind of threw my I, I read this book called word freak uh by stefan fatsis which is great like just kind of like you know a lot of the same things from scrabble chess trivia like these things just all keep lining up you know there's end games to study like the two letter words and there's openings to study with bingos and sort kind of middle game tactics and things like that and you know if you get avid at anagramming and you sort of apply yourself and i played tons of tournaments and for a whole year i did nothing but played tons of scrabble and and yeah, I, I got a rating. It uses the same ELO rating as chess, but it, instead of from zero to three thousand, it goes from zero to two thousand. And uh, I got to about fourteen hundred level, and I stopped playing tournaments. Okay, but you still do actively teach it. Yeah, I have a couple girls that I teach. A girl named Maya, and a couple other kids, and I even teach adults some Scrabble too. Nice, amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I feel like we've covered most of our topics. Let me just browse through my notes here. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Go I'm, on. I was just saying I'm a, I'm a pretty big talker. Um, I was I was going to say something about uh, Magnus. I was I was starting it, but then I changed the subject. Um, so Magnus was preparing for the Sinkfield Cup. Uh, I guess maybe about two years ago or two or three, and him and uh, Peter Nielsen, his second, and his dad, and. Uh, Levon, Aronian, and you know, a few other people. We were all kind of hanging out. And I remember just being very blown away by them preparing for this huge tournament because I was thinking they would just be, you know, stuck on computers and just like getting like grungy and just in a dark room staring at like plus 0. 0.02 variations. And literally they had like a Batsford chess book out and they were just oh, like, wow. They were, like, flipping on, like, page after page of, like, winning in the semi-slav or something like that. <laughs> what the f And they were just, like, flipping through the book and, like, oh, what, what does that say? And they were, like, looking at pages, like, like, going over lines. I was like, if I'll be a monkey's uncle, like, if these 2,800 players are, like, looking through this average chess book that I could get at Barnes and Nobles, what excuse do I have? Like, it's 
it's not about talent. It's it's about hard work sometimes. I mean, talent doesn't mean a lot for sure. Playing a lot, but these guys are just reading the same books you can read. That's funny. Okay. Yeah. Um. All right. So we just got a couple more things. But do you have any other stories that you like? You feel like you need to be told. <laughs> Um, I guess around the same time, um, we played some, uh, we played some, uh, basketball. Cause you know, I mean, he, one of the things that I'm decent at, it was just like, you know, losing at chess, but you know, I also have like, you know, I'm, I'm six, six and I'm a decent basketball player. I'm not great. I'm on a recreational team, but Magnus loves playing basketball and soccer. So, you know, we hung out for a while. I mean, I would say, you know, over the past couple of years, I've seen him several times, and, uh, you know, I remember one time we were just sitting eating breakfast and I was like kind of picking his brain about, you know, how we would fare against all of the other great players in the world. And like unequivocally, like without even hesitation, I'm like, hey, uh, how would you do against Capablanca or Bobby Fischer? And he's like, I'd, I'd crush him, beat him all. Like he wasn't even like not even bragging in his voice. He just like shook his head like I was crazy to even ask. Like, of course, I would beat Bobby Fischer. Of course, I'd be like, I'm. So I was just like, oh, thanks, cool, man. <laughs> and how- I, I just like I, I liked his kind of like just complete sang froid about it. Like, have you seen my games? <laughs> and uh, you know, Magnus is super competitive. Like, we we actually played a lot of basketball, and he is a he's a chuck. He, he does not pass the ball, and he's a, he's a good fowler. So uh, it's hard to be on the basketball court with him because like he will. He'll he'll throw an elbow here and there, and if you if you try to contest, he's like, uh, that's funny. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty tough. And what about his soccer game? With which one? What's his better sport? I am a pretty fat guy, so I never really got soccer with him. But I I hear he's fantastic. I know Mike Klein actually probably played some soccer with him. Yeah, I know he played basketball with him, and I assume soccer. Yeah, I think soccer yeah. too. Yeah, during during the world championship match, um, I guess someone had recognized me because I. I did emceeing for like a simo that he did. And I did emceeing for a talk that he did at a conference and a blindfold game. So, you know, every single time he's in New York, I always kind of try to see him. But, you know, the last time obviously was in November for the World Chess Championship. And he wasn't kind of doing a lot of like, you know, middling to fair things because he was very focused on holding onto his title. But uh, somehow, you know, he had actually gotten me into contact with like Norwegian television. So, I did a bunch of stuff for like Norwegian TV and it was, <laughs> it was very, very fun because they kept asking me questions and I was kind of like relaying how Americans feel about having Magnus. So that nice. Was fun yeah. Fun. All right. So I think we basically covered everything except, um, you know, we, this has been an unusually light on chess episode. So, uh, let's just close with a little bit of like, like, how do you help your kids? What do you tell them to get better? Other, oh, of course, we have to get back to the don't resigning thing. Um, yeah. So, all right, we'll we'll come back to how you help your kids. Other, because first, I have to talk more about how you hurt them by not letting the poor kids resign. So, what's oh. the deal with that philosophy? Well, uh, it's very simple. I, I, instead of arguing for the negative. I want you to argue for the positives of resigning first, and then and then I could sort of tear it apart after. Okay, that. I mean, life is very short. You know, <laughs> we should be spending our time having novel experiences, not as you say, checkmating with the king and the queen. Okay, well, I have about I don't even know about maybe like eight hundred games I saved from ICC of me getting stalemated and <laughs> very very various positions of blitz. And there's actually the feeling of relief. I tell I tell you the story about like, you know, going to Disney World when I was younger and not remembering any of the rides 
only remembering having to use the bathroom so bad. And the best feeling I could possibly have had was when I finally got to that bathroom. It was, a <laughs> it was better than any ride I had. And I'll tell you something. A lot of the time when you're playing chess and you're losing, there's no better feeling. No better feeling than being dead and having the governor pick up that phone. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how many. Like, even if it's only one out of every 15, one out of 20 games you get that stomach. And the fact is, in Scholastic Chess, it happens way more than you even realize. I've oh, yeah. I've around Scholastic Chess for so long. But even in my own games, I mean, from time to time, I don't just want the kids to learn from just general speaking. I share with them constantly. Every single day I get stalemated. Every single day I'm in a losing position. Every day of my life I'm in a losing position I get stalemated. I have a stalemate, and I can show you my list on chess.com because it's just dozens and dozens of games. But it's not just about, like, the efficacy. It's almost... You have to learn resilience. And the only way to learn resilience is just like I said when I'm practicing everything else, you have to learn how to fight positions out. I I know so many different stalemate tactics from practice and, you know, just various things like being able to know rules, like calling touch move and peace connection and all of these little technicalities that happen on a regular basis. I'm an optimistic person. I'm also a cynic, but... That optimism, that flame will never go out. And if you learn how to fight out positions, and, and you're right, life is short, but I will not doubt that I've played hundreds of hours of chess with only my king on the board. And it's almost become like a religion to me. I would say that the likelihood of me resigning is like, it's less than zero. In, in ever because it's it's like something I never even consider. It's like a sexual orientation. Like I don't, I'm not considering like marrying a man tomorrow, and I'm not considering resigning. Like those are on like the same levels of <laughs> of things. It's like it, after a while, you kind of beat it out of your system. But it's a good thing too because then online, you know, I get the most vitriol. People, oh, I'm sure. Like, yeah. Oh, oh, goodness! Just last night, just last night, this guy was like, "You idiot, you 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 piece of resign. What what are you playing this game?" And two minutes later, he stalemated me, and I'm like. Mm. Or even worse, like positions where like I'll win on time because I move my king all around the board. It's just it's it's so ridiculously common and I learn how to fight these positions back so often and yeah, it's it's just it's a worthwhile trait and I would recommend to a lot of people to realize you'll never ever ever win you you win zero percent of the games you resign, but you win maybe point zero 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 one percent of the games that you don't. And you know what? If I if I were your doctor and I told you prognosis was negative or it was a 0.0% chance if you did this, guess what? If it was life or death, you would do it. And That's true, I, but you you don't get to, well, in my opinion, you don't get to restart another life when you die. So in chess, you can resign and get on with the next one, you know? But, right, but there's that value of saving that. It's, if I, I can't really articulate into words the joy, the the, the pleasure centers of my brain that are a lit like a drug every single time I'm losing, and I, 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 it's, it's a drug that I chase. In fact, I, it's like this anti-chess. You know, I'm never even playing great moves. I'm losing from the beginning of the game, and you know, whatever. Like on ICC, I'm like 2400, or you know, on Chess.com, like 24 something, and you know, I beat like these GMs all the time. But I'm always in these losing positions because I'm just trying to have the kind of fun that I've kind of cornered myself into having it. As of right now, philosophically, that fun is the trolling of chess. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I think if nothing else, people should understand that like 
and they should know this anyway but it's not personal you know like like because oh, it seems oh. like the people online like what they don't under like they think like they think that when you're not resigning against them it's because you've made a study of their games and you've oh, decided yeah. like you know they're the ones that are going to stalemate you but it's just a general philosophy well i'll i'll point them to a video of me playing magnus carlson where magnus is up three queens against me <laughs> greatest chess player of all time is beating me and i don't resign to him so you know if i could just take that as a snapshot and like show it to everyone else like i didn't resign to kasparov when i was down a beast i didn't resign to magnus carlson when i was down three queens i don't care who you are but you're not going to get a resignation out of me sorry buddy okay excellent all right i actually unless you have something else to say i feel like that is the chess advice like we were going to talk about improvement at chess but i feel like that encapsulates your philosophy as well as anything there you go okay so john i mean you know some of our listeners know you, but if anyone else wants to drop you a line, you know, introduce you to some more famous people, how can they do that? Well, I'm Corbla on uh, most platforms. You can just get me at Corbla at Gmail, Corbla on Skype, Corbla anywhere. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah Facebook, the chess servers. Exactly. Uh, you, you made a brief appearance on Twitter. I feel like Twitter was perfect for you, but you kind yeah. of you, you lost interest, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right, John. Well, uh, we'll uh, we'll put that in the notes so that uh, people can can get in touch with you and praise you. Thank you so much, Ben. It was a lot of fun. Thanks to everyone who supports Perpetual Chess. I spend about five hours a week on each episode, and even though I love doing it, it can be hard to find the time. Donations from listeners make a huge difference and make Perpetual Chess a lot more sustainable. Special shout out to my Patreon Perpetual Partners. They are Johnny McMenamin, Todd Bryant, Greg Shahadi, Jen Scream, Timothy Ha, Tatia Vabramahan, Paul Sweeney, Jennifer Shahadi, Pascal Charbonneau, Zhao Cheng, Kelly Palmer, Matthew Tedesco, Gary Andrews, Krishna Galapakrishnan, Ricky Grahava, Chris Flanagan, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Rob Lazorchek, Jennifer Valens, Tim Seymour, and Chris Wainscott. Thanks a lot, everyone. I'll catch you guys next week with another episode. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.